Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask today that what we have just sung in our hearts would be the testimony of our lives. That we would place all on the altar, Lord. That there would be nothing that we would hold back from giving to You. Father, that all that we are would be caught up in worshiping You living for You, glorifying You in all that we say and do. And Father, we ask today that as we come to Your Word, or as we come to uh, find and, and introduce a new section of Your Word to us, Father, that our hearts would be open and receptive to what You have for us, that we would seek, Lord, to be molded and shaped and transformed to be more like You. Father, work in our midst by Your Spirit as only You can. We pray all this in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 4. So I said that uh, we have the new Scripture journals for you to grab, and and we're not actually going to be starting in there uh, this morning. Jeremiah chapter 4. And Jeremiah is going to serve sort of as a a theme for us of what we're seeking to have these minor prophets do in our hearts as we study them over. Now, I'm I'm shooting for a year, but I'm not naive enough to know it's going to take probably a lot longer than a year to get through these four last minor prophets. But particularly, we're going to be looking at how we need to till the soil of the soul. Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 1. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in Him, and in Him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest My wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. When I was a teenager, uh, my family lived in Mount Lebanon. Um, We had a rented a house there on Moreland Drive in Mount Lebanon. And I remember one year, uh, I was uh, wanting to contribute to the household by growing some crops in Mount Lebanon. Um, and so I, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant some stuff on the side of our house. And so, of course, having to do that, I had to um, get involved with digging up the ground uh, to make ready for 
these, uh, these plants I was going to plant. And I was going to plant, I had these grand, grandiose ideas. I'm going to put corn in there. I'm going to have green beans, carrots. And I was just, I was going to be farmer Phil and have all sorts of good stuff going on there. And I remember I got out there with a the shovel and, you know, here I am, a young, strapping, young teenager. And I'm like, I'm going to dig up this ground. And man, was it rocky, thorny ground. All right. I, I don't know. I know there are farmers in this area, but they ain't in Mount Lebanon. I can tell you that. And they're certainly not on Moreland Drive because it was hard work. There was rocks. There was, there was all sorts of roots that I had to dig up. And I'll be honest, I got a little tired at some point. And, and finally, after I turned over some things, like, ah, that's good enough. And I sort of threw the, threw the, uh, the seeds down. And, uh, and later that year, I waited for the crop to come up. And, and I was really excited. I, I saw my uh, green beans growing, and, and they were coming up, and they looked great. And then one day I went out there, and they were all gone. And it was like some sort of wretched animal had eaten all the stalks that had grown up there. And, of course, it was a deer that had done that. I, I had a few carrots that took, and, and, but they, they ate the tops off of those carrots except for one top. And so I was finally, I, well, here's finally something I can dig up. And I pulled up, I should, this was before the age of cell phones that have cameras on them, you can take a picture. But I had probably the most crooked looking tiny carrot that you've ever seen in your life. This thing was all wrinkly and it was probably about this thick and this big. And, and my mom said, that's not even enough to feed a rabbit with. Um, I was unable to really succeed well in my farming adventures in Mount Lebanon because I didn't do the hard work, the necessary work of digging up the ground and preparing it so that there could be a true harvest. We're going to begin a study of the last four books of the Old Testament. And these last four books of the Old Testament come in a section known as the Minor Prophets. Now we're going to talk a little bit about that today. It's going to be a little bit of a different sermon in that I want to introduce you to the Minor Prophets. And really we're going to talk in general about the Prophets and then more specifically about the Minor Prophets. But this passage, and we're going to return to it here in a few moments, this passage provides for us, I believe, the goal of what the minor prophets sought to do. And that is to break up the hard, stony, fallow ground of the hearts of God's people. I think we have this tendency to think that conviction and, and correction and, and all these things that, that we need to do, repentance and stuff, that's something that the world who hasn't accepted Christ needs to do. But what we find the prophets doing is they're not speaking to the nations, they're speaking to those among God's people. And so their message for us today is the same as the message they have for God's people thousands of years ago. We need to look at our hearts and break up our fallow ground. Now, I think it's important for us as we begin this journey through these last four books to sort of step back a little bit and discuss what is a prophet? What is a prophet? The Hebrew term prophet it refers literally to one, the actual, um, the actual 
word itself, if you understand the actual meaning of it in Hebrew, it means one who has either received a word from the Lord or one to whom the Lord has spoken. One that God has spoken to. That's the literal meaning of a prophet. And so a prophet is distinguished by the fact that he is one who speaks what has been spoken to him. A prophet does not stand and proclaim his own opinions. A prophet does not come and bring his own ideas. Rather, he provides what God has given to him. Now, in our study in 2 Peter, Peter points to this as a necessary understanding for pilgrims as they're walking through the world. He tells us in 2 Peter 1, 21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the primary thing that distinguishes what a prophet is. And it's the thing that differentiates truth from error. False prophets that Peter is warning about in chapter 2, and we, I'm not going to rehash everything we've gone through in 2 Peter, but false prophets are those who speak man's ideas. The difference between a false prophet and a true prophet is he speaks the word of the Lord. They don't speak the wisdom of men. They speak only that which comes from God. I think it's important to note an example of this and how this would work between God and the prophet. And we find it particularly in the charge that God gives to Moses. If you remember, Moses is called upon by God to go to Pharaoh and to give deliverance and freedom to the people of God, to, the, to Israel. And Moses isn't too thrilled about this idea. He says, I, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak well. I'm not the one that should be doing this. And so God says, fine, if you don't want to be the one, then this is how it's going to work. I'm going to find your brother Aaron, and he's going to speak. And notice what he says. He says, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And so you see the, the illustration of how the prophet works. A prophet is one like Moses would tell Aaron, this is what you need to say. And Aaron would go and say that to Pharaoh. And so this, this difference is God was, Moses was like God and Aaron was like the prophet. And so the same thing is true of the prophets, just not with Moses as the middleman, if you will. God spoke to the prophets and they would provide the word that God had given them. Now, Jeremiah is one of the writing prophets. He's also a prophet we see much written of. We see some written of in Scripture And Jeremiah, his message was a tough one. God told Jeremiah that he was going to speak through Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's message would not be received by the people. They would actually, God tells them, they're going to turn away from you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to torment you. They're going to seek to kill you. And so there was this great temptation from Jeremiah that, Well, what's the easier path? Should I tell people what they want to hear or what they need to hear? And so Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 20, he sort of 
in frustration expresses what he's facing. And I think it's a good illustration of what a prophet did. He says, whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you're basically good people. That's not what he cries out and says. He doesn't cry out and say, oh, you know, everything's going to be good. And, and what does he say? Every time I speak, every time I cry out, I'm not just speaking, I'm not crying out, I'm shouting. What am I shouting? Violence and destruction. People don't like to hear that. People don't want to hear somebody going around calling them to account for their sin and telling them of the consequences of those sin, sins. That consequence which is severe. And so Jeremiah just honestly expresses to God, the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. And then here's what makes Jeremiah such a clear example of a prophet. He says, if I say, I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name. If Jeremiah says, I'm done with this, I can't deal with the persecution, I can't deal with the difficulty, I can't deal with, with the turmoil in my life. If I say, I'm done, I'm not going to speak or mention him anymore. Notice what he says. As a prophet, he wasn't there to give people what he thought or what he said. Notice what he says. If I say this, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and notice what he says and I what I cannot the prophets were so driven by the word of Yahweh the word of God given to them that even when they didn't want to say violence and destruction they really had no choice they had to they had to speak the word of the Lord. And this is what the charge was to Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. Impudent and stubborn. I send you to them. And I'm sure Ezekiel's like, yay! <laughs> I send you to them, and you shall say to them, and this is the key, this is what a prophet does. He doesn't say, this is what Ezekiel says. He says, thus says who? The Lord God. So a prophet is one who speaks the word of the Lord. So compelled to speak the word that it becomes within them a burning fire deep in their bones. And they cannot help but speak the truth. Now, I think it's important to note that this is the most fundamental meaning of a prophet. One who says, thus says the Lord. Now, I think when we often think of a prophet... We think not necessarily of someone who says, thus says the Lord, but someone who says, this is what's going to happen in the future. 
I think that we've gotten our focus on what the role of the prophets was off a little bit, and we look to them as sort of foretellers rather than forthtellers. They are not primarily concerned with future events. They are concerned with giving the message God has given to them. Their main concern was prescriptive, not predictive. They spoke to real people addressing their very real spiritual needs. Their predictions, which do happen, and they do speak of things that would be future to those whom they were speaking to, and at times they spoke to things that are even future to us. But it is a small fraction of what the actual content of what they said. Their predictions actually served to address the spiritual needs of those to whom they ministered to. And this is where we in the church today have gotten off track. We look at predictions and we say, we we almost look at them as a way for us to read the tea leaves of the world around us, right? I'm sure all of you have had the thought into your mind, particularly with the fact that there is war in Israel. Is this the end of the world? Are these prophecies coming true? And I think there is a place to ask that question, but may we never be preoccupied with that question. And I fear that many in the church have become preoccupied with trying to figure out when these things are going to happen. That's not what prophecy is given to do. God did not prophesy, and He doesn't give predictions just so you can know what's happening in the future. He gives His Word so that you would be changed, so that you would be convicted. So it's important for us to keep that in mind. I think it's also important to note that they were writing to people with real spiritual needs. What were those spiritual needs? Well, if we look at the time of the prophets, particularly the time of the writing prophets, and now we have to understand prophecy and, and the role of a prophet goes all the way back. Really, if you want to trace it um, in actual action, it goes all the way back to Adam. But as far as someone being designated a prophet, we know it goes back to Enoch. And Enoch lived thousands of years before these prophets. But there was a particular time in which God sent the prophets to His people. And this was the time of what we call the two Jorams, when they ruled in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So just a quick history lesson about Israel. Israel was God's people. They reached the pinnacle of the kingdom in Solomon's reign. And then after Solomon's reign, his two sons warred against each other and the kingdom was split in two. You have the northern kingdom, which is often called Israel, and then the southern kingdom, which is often called Judah. And these two kingdoms remain split up until the time of Christ. Now, they would be different kings. There would be a northern king and a southern king. And it is at the time of of what we see in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, it's at the time of these two Jorams, one, one Joram ruled in the northern kingdom and one Joram ruled in the southern kingdom, that the writing prophets really become influential. Now, when we think of prophets, particularly this time, our minds should probably go to the prophets Elijah and Elisha. If you remember Elijah, who was his thorn in his side all the time? 
that wicked queen, Jezebel. Jezebel hated Yahweh. She was given over completely to worship of Baal. And she sought by her influence on Ahab, she fought, thought, thought by her influence on the nations, that she could take Israel and have them turn not to the Lord, but away from the Lord and turn to Baal. Well, in the northern kingdom, guess which Joram comes to play? It's her son. And this Joram, who is influenced by his cultic mother, he begins to seek to perpetuate that rejection of Yahweh and continuing to fo focus and go after Baal worship. Joram, the southern kingdom, the king of Judah, he marries Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. And so up until this time, there had still been some semblance that Israel was committed to the worship of Yahweh. But now, when he comes in, guess what begins to creep into the southern kingdom? The worship of Baal. The prophets wrote to address the festering corruption of Israel in their growing rejection of Yahweh as their God and King. And they called them to repentance and faith. What I find is amazing is God saw fit to address the rebellion of His people through the messages of the prophets. Now, we are Christians here in America, right? The Christian church. We don't have problems with idolatry, do we? We do. John Calvin is famously quoted as saying, the heart of man is an idol factory. And we are very prone in the church in America, in the church today, and may I say we are all prone at Bible Baptist Church to be like those wicked kings. We have a pull to want to dethrone God from His rightful place and to place something else, anything else, but Him in that place. So are these minor prophets applicable to us today? Yes. They spoke to address the spiritual condition of a people who had turned from the true God to follow their own ways. And boy, we see that today in the church. I would submit that their message is more needed today than it has ever been. And let me challenge you, their message is needed for you equally as much today. Every prophet from Moses to Malachi sought to call Israel back to the worship of the true God. And ultimately, they all pointed forward to the true prophet, Jesus Christ. The one who does not speak the word that's given to him, but who is, as John tells us, the word which became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. So this is the ministry of the prophets. Now, in particular, when we think of the prophets, I think our minds generally go to those more well-known books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. 
And they are often described in our day and age as the major prophets. But now we're going to be spending time looking at a quarter of what we call the minor prophets. So why are they called minor? The term minor is actually first introduced to us by Augustine. He categorized them, and again, I'm terrible with pronouncing Latin phrases, but prophete minoris, right? Minor prophets. He's the first one that sort of put that label upon them. It's also important for us to note how they were considered in the Old Testament. They are not considered as, a, as each individual separate books, but they were actually viewed as the book of the twelve. They were held together as one entire literary unit. So why were they called minor? Well, really, the main reason is they just were shorter than the other books. If you take all of their writings combined, they are less than what Isaiah himself has written. So while their books are shorter and the content is much smaller than the other prophets, it does not detract from the fact that what they say is immensely important to God's people Israel. Their significance is not minor at all. They speak to God's people in in some of the most significant periods of its history, both during the time where Israel, before they had been taken into exile, and then particularly during times when they were taken out of that, were in exile, and then then when they were seeking to come back back into the land of Israel. But most significantly of all, we find many, many prophecies of who our Savior is in the Minor Prophets. They point forward to the coming of Christ. Now, it's also helpful for us, I think, to understand the way in which the Hebrews divided the Old Testament. So, today we generally think of the Old Testament as broken up into five different sections. We think of the Pentateuch, we think of the historical books, we think of the poetic books, We think of the major prophets and the minor prophets. And that's sort of how we understand the Old Testament. But the Hebrews didn't didn't cut things that way. They viewed the Old Testament in three particular divisions. They wrote of what would be called the Tanakh, which is the Torah, right? The Pentateuch, the books of Moses. The prophets, or the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Ketuvim. And so these three sections are the sections that encompass how they would view and break up the Old Testaments. Now, and we're going to see in just a moment, this is actually how Jesus himself viewed the Old Testament. And we're going to look at something in a few minutes about that. But it's also amazing to see a, a progression in what they're speaking to do. The Torah the, f- the ending of the first section of the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy 34, it speaks of a prophecy, a promise from God that there will be a prophet who will come like Moses. And then the next section, the prophets, begins not with what we would traditionally think of a prophet, but it begins with the book of Joshua. And so the the first section of the Old Testament ends with the promise of a prophet like Moses. And then as Israel is waiting for the fulfillment of that promise, 
What are they charged to do? What does God tell Joshua to do? This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you'll what? Meditate on it. How long? Day and night. That term meditate actually has the idea of murmur, that you will speak it to yourself over and over again. And so there's a promise and then a charge to look to and keep the law of God at the forefront of your minds. Then we come to the end of that historical section, or I'm sorry, the end of of the prophets, and it ends with Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 3, it speaks of the sudden appearing of Yahweh Himself, of God Himself among His people. And then you go to the next section, which is the writings, the Ketuvim, which begins with the Psalms. And what do the Psalms begin with? It begins with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he what? Meditates day and night. So there's a pattern that that is shown in the Old Testament as it's broken up. Promise, so as we wait for the promise, what are we supposed to be doing? Murmuring in God's law. Promise at the end of the writings, or at the end of the prophets. Yahweh's going to suddenly appear with His people. So when, until that happens, what should we be doing? Murmuring, meditating upon God's Word. Now, I, I say this because when we had just finished in 2 Peter, 2 Peter ends his book by telling us that the day of the Lord will what? Come. There's a promise that Jesus will come again to His people. So what then is the implication that we should be doing as we wait for that? Meditating upon the Word of God. Murmuring. Speaking it to ourselves over and over again. There is a promise that God gives to His people and the response of His people to that promise is devotion to Him. So, these are the minor prophets. What do they emphasize? Well, there's a few things that I want us to point out, and I'm going to put them up here for you on the screen. The first major emphasis of the minor prophets is that Israel must return to the covenant. Israel must return to the covenant. A professor that I had in college, he makes this statement about the minor prophets He tells us really that you cannot truly understand or appreciate the minor prophets without understanding the the theological foundation for the minor prophets, which is Deuteronomy. Everyone's favorite book, right? (laughs) Yet there's, there's a key in understanding how Deuteronomy helps us to understand the purpose of which the minor prophets are given. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, We see God making promises and and He speaks of of blessings and cursings. And He speaks that there is a way of blessing that Israel will have and there's a way of cursing that they will have. If they turn from the Lord, they'll be cursed. If they follow Him and keep the law, they'll be blessed. And then then in Deuteronomy 30, what He comes to the conclusion is, guess God is already predicting what Israel is going to do. Is Israel going to keep the law or are they going to turn from it? They're going to turn from it. 
And so what he says in Deuteronomy 30 is that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is the charge that the minor prophets take up. After hundreds of years between what Moses has written here in Deuteronomy and when the minor prophets begin prophesying, Israel has turned from the Lord. They have turned to idolatry. And so God is saying, I'm going to do a work among you. I'm going to circumcise your heart. And the goal that Israel must recognize is turn away from those things and love God fully. That is the message of the minor prophets. They don't flinch in proclaiming that truth to Israel. And Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy 30, calls heaven and earth to witness against them and to tell them, listen, there's two ways, two paths that you have. Blessing and a curse. And he says, so so which one should you choose? Choose what? Life. That you and your offspring may live Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. This is what the minor prophets are calling Israel to return to. And so they speak, calling Israel back to honor the covenant that God made with them with Moses. They seek this to happen through the transformation of head, heart, and hand. One of the amazing things we find in the prophets in general and in the minor prophets is their description of who God is. They provide the truth about Yahweh. He has, is, and will continue to execute judgment on sin. He is perfectly holy. Those things come blaringly clear from the message of the prophets. As we're going to begin next week looking in Zephaniah, it it begins with God saying, I'm going to wipe away everything. Why? Why? Because he's a holy God who cannot abide sin. And so what we find is that the minor prophets call out and say, listen, I'm going to give you information about who God is, but don't just let that information sit in your brain. Let it ruminate in there, but rather it needs to go from your head to your heart. As they call Israel back to loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then as it changes your affections, as it changes your hearts, then the natural continuation of that work is that your hands will be set to obey the Lord your God. Heart, head, heart, and hand. Thirdly, they anticipate the day of the Lord. Now I mentioned in our discussion of 2 Peter that this biblical concept, the day of the Lord, is vast. And it's expansive. And we're going to be delving into some of the depths of that through this study of the minor prophets. 
But suffice it to say for now, the day of the Lord stands in great contrast to the day of man. Now, which day are we living in right now? And the answer is the day of man. Mankind thinks that they are the best thing since sliced bread, right? We're looking to ourselves to fix all the world's problems. We've got our candidates. We've got our policies. We've got our initiatives. We've got our structures. We've got our government. We've got our our political ideologies. And that's what's going to save the world. Mankind is going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. And God has been allowing this to happen. It is the day of man. But remember what Peter tells us. Will the day of man endure eternally? No. He says, don't let the fact that God is withholding His coming, withholding the day of the Lord so that more people will come to be saved, don't let that give you any type of idea that the day of the Lord will not come. The day of the Lord, Peter boldly proclaims, will come. And on that day, the very earth upon which we walk, that we so glibly think we are the rulers of, it will shake and burn. And so the prophets remind us that the day of the Lord is coming. But they also provide the promise of the Davidic Messiah. The promise of the Davidic Messiah. Now, as we think of the minor prophets, now your books begin with Zephaniah because we're only doing the last four of the minor prophets, but the minor prophets begin with which book? Ten billion Sunday school bonus points if you can tell me which book begins the minor prophets. Hosea. And remember, these are all considered the book of the twelve, so they're considered one unit by the Hebrews. Now, why is that significant? Well, when you're writing a paper, when you're writing a book, when you're writing anything, you begin with stating your thesis, your proposition, where? In the beginning. Guess what Hosea does for us? He provides a thesis or the point, the thing that, that, he, that all the minor prophets are going to drive to. Hosea 3, 4 through 5. Notice what he says. The children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And what he's speaking of is the fact that Israel is going to be taken captive. The temple is going to be destroyed in Jerusalem. They're not even going to have the ability to have their own gods. The gods of the other nations are going to be thrust upon them. That's going to happen. But then there's great hope. Afterward, after this happens, the children of Israel shall what? Return and what? Seek the Lord their God. And David, their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. This is the message of the minor prophets. There's going to be judgment that comes upon Israel, but there's also great hope in the king, David, David's son, the one who is yet but David's Lord, Jesus Christ. And that will be the true hope of rebellious Israel. 
So this is the message of the minor prophets. Now, there are 12 minor prophets, and we are only dealing with four of the minor prophets. So the next question you may have is, why the last four? Why, are we dealing, why aren't we doing all the minor prophets? And if, if you were to come to me and say, I think we should do all the minor prophets, I'm going to say, you need to give me a break here, all right? That's a lot to cover. There's a couple reasons why we're doing just the minor prophets. They, they speak, interestingly, at times of both revival and rebellion in Israel. In fact, the first book that we're going to look at, Zephaniah, he speaks during the time of great revival in Israel. And it's very interesting that Zephaniah, who is, who is coming at a time where Israel is experiencing renewal in worshiping God, what is his message to Israel? You need to continue to repent. And I, I find that so important for us because we have a tendency to think, oh, I've repented, I've changed, things are going good. And then we have this tendency to slide back into the things because we think, oh, repentance is a one-time thing. Repentance is an all-the-time thing. And Zephaniah provides a clear description of that. They also speak during times of despair. Have you ever had despair in your life? Those times of despair are often in our lives, and so they speak to us, providing hope for us. They also speak during times of rebuilding. They speak to Israel both as a kingdom as a nation in exile, and as a nation that is returning. I think we're also looking at them because they really serve as a launching point for anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Remember, as they are ending the time, that section of the prophets of the threefold division of the Old Testament, there is an anticipation that there's a promise coming from God, and that promise finds a lot of clarity in these last four. We also are studying them because we just finished 2 Peter. And 2 Peter speaks of the day of the Lord, speaks of pointing to these things. And I think it's helpful for us to reference what we just learned and to understand the, the expanse of what they're bringing. Remember, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime until that happens? Look and meditate on the Word of God. And so we will meditate on these four books. Look, these books are often neglected. They're probably, as you're, as you're, they're short. And as you're reading through them, as you read through the Bible in a year, you sort of maybe glance over them. Like, oh, I read, I read a whole book of the Old Testament. And you're excited to do that because as you're reading through the Bible, the Old Testament books, some of them are really long. Like, oh, a short one. Oh, it's a reprieve. And I think sometimes we sort of just rush through them without stopping to consider what they're saying. John Blanchard calls the minor prophets the clean pages of the Bible because they're the pages that we so often do not turn to. And then finally, one of the reasons we're dealing with these last four is the scripture journals are packaged like that. <laughs> so it works out well. But I want us to draw attention very briefly again back to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4. I 
I think if I were to say and ask for a show of hands, I'm not going to, but if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you want revival? Every hand in here would go up. We desire revival. Look, look at our world, right? Look at our nation. Look at our communities. They're crumbling. Very basic foundations of society are falling apart around us. And so we as God's people yearn for revival. We want it desperately. How do we get it? And many times we will look and we'll say, well, we'll pray, Lord, send revival. Lord, send revival. Lord, send revival. And yes, we must cry out to God that His Spirit would move and shake His people and bring revival to them. But the minor prophets give for us the pathway to revival. If you really want revival, you'll listen to the message of the prophets and you'll do what they tell you to do. And where does that begin? Jeremiah provides the key for us. It's interesting, Jeremiah as a whole is quoted by every single one or things in Jeremiah are quoted by every single one of the minor prophets. In fact, as they were compiled together into this book of the 12, there is a thought process that has been growing among scholars that Jeremiah was sort of forming the gel that held them all together. Jeremiah exerts immense influence over the minor prophets. And so as, as we genuine, if we genuinely want revival, the minor prophets, and particularly what Jeremiah tells us here, gives us the tools to do that. And we see it in Jeremiah 4, 3b. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. How are we to respond to these minor prophets? Three very quick things. We need to listen for and respond to conviction. Revival must begin with preparation for revival. And that preparation begins in our own hearts, in your heart, in my heart. We have this tendency to think that the problem with the world is everything out there, the politics, the leaders, the sinfulness. And we do this because we can cast the spotlight off of ourselves and onto them. Listen, we should never compromise what God's Word says about anything that is sinful. But before we begin standing on a soapbox, proclaiming the sins of other people, have we broken up the fallow ground of our own hearts? Have we looked within to ourselves? Many of the rebukes we see of the prophets, particularly Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are applicable to us as well. We are just like stubborn, rebellious Israel today. You and I are just like them. We want revival. Are we willing to do the hard work of breaking up the rubble of our own hearts? 
This is not easy work. It's not enjoyable work. When I was digging up a garden in Mount Lebanon, I didn't enjoy the sweat of my brow and the the thorns and the briars and the stones that I had to dig up through. It was hard work. It's much harder work for us to break up the fallow ground of our own hearts. I think it's also important for us to note that we have to do this. This command is given to Israel. Break up, you break up the fallow ground of your hearts. Now, we also saw in Deuteronomy that God has to do this work as well. He's the one who circumcises our hearts. He's the one who changes us. So we must never discount our dependence upon His grace in doing this. But listen, God's grace does not come to us to leave us where we are. It empowers us to change. Are you willing to do that today? I'm warning you, as we go through this study of the minor prophets, it is a dangerous undertaking we are doing. Dangerous because it is going to require things of you that you don't want to do. It's going, God's going to ask you to set aside everything else and to place Him on the throne of your life. Are you willing to do that? The minor prophets are going to call us to this. So as we respond to this message, we have to take up Jeremiah's cause to break up our fallow ground. We need to listen to and respond. Listen for and respond to conviction. Secondly, we need to reject a speculative approach. I remember several years ago, I... I, sent a survey out and asked people what they wanted to hear on Sunday evenings. And you know what one of the, one of the first topics that came up was? Prophecy. And so I thought, well, I guess I'll jump into the book of Revelation. Here, here's, a, here's a little note. I never made it through that entire series. In fact, if you look at many people who try to preach the book of Revelation or comment, commenters who write commentaries on the book of Revelation, oftentimes... They make it to chapter four, or I'm sorry, chapter twelve or thirteen, and then it's like I don't know what's going on here. Because we have this, we have this fascination with wanting to know what's happening in the future. And again, we're living in times where that's that that intensity is strengthening because of what's going on in the Middle East. And so we want to speculate. Is this what, is what's happening now in Israel? Is that what is meant in Revelation? Or is that what's meant in Daniel? Or, or is this what Zephaniah was referring to? Like we have this desire to connect the dots. Listen, that's not why the prophets are given to us. They're not a crystal ball for us to look into and to see what's going to happen in the future. Rather, they're warning us, listen, these things are going to happen When, where, and how, that's really none of your concern. You know what your concern is? Repent and turn to God. So let's not get caught up in the tendency to focus on the predictions and to minimize and neglect the conviction. And finally, as we respond to the minor prophets, we should seek to know and trust Jesus more. 
The final goal of the minor prophets is is that they point forward to who Christ is. This is truly the ultimate purpose of all of Scripture. At the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke describes this account of where Jesus opens the minds of His disciples to know the Scriptures. And He comes to them, and after the disciples, these are the very, very, some of the very last words of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says to him, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that, how much? Everything. Written about who? Me, about Christ. And then notice, in the entire Old Testament, and how does he divide the Old Testament? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Tanaka, the Pentateuch, the Nevaim, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the Psalms, which begin that last section of the writings, must be what? Fulfilled. And then there's this amazing act of God's grace where what does He do for His disciples? He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. As we journey through the minor prophets, we are going to see strange things spoken of. We're going to hear of historical circumstances that are going to seem foreign and disconnected from us. But in all of it, you know who we will see? Jesus. We'll see Him clearly portrayed. And we can know more of who He is through this. But we must do it in dependence upon Him. He must open our minds. So, next week we'll jump in with Zephaniah. Let me challenge you. Come next week prepared to to let the sword of the Spirit be a trowel, a spade in your heart. Breaking up the hardness of your heart so that you would turn from your idols and turn to serve the living God. May we truly till the soil of the soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word Father, thank you for the challenge of Jeremiah. Lord, thank you that you have preserved these words for us today. Lord, we want revival. Father, may we mean that when we say it. May we not just give lip service to revival, but may we, by your grace, Seek for our hearts to be torn up. To tear down the idols of our lives so that Christ alone may be king. May you work through this study, through your word, through these minor prophets, ancient men who speak your word to us today. 
And in all of this, Father, we are dependent upon your Son sending the Spirit to open our minds to your truth. Father, work as only you can. May we go from this place today truly considering what you've called us to. We pray this all in Christ's precious name. Please.